Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hey, Mike, would you bring that TV over for me? It's 4th of July, so our TV mover person took the Sunday off, I guess. Um, (laughs) Hey, happy 4th to you. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have you with us. Uh, I hope that you and your family, I don't know uh, when to acknowledge the 4th since it's in the middle of the week, but um, I hope you and your friends and family have a great time celebrating the freedom that we have in Jesus. And I just want to remind you, we don't worship freedom, but we do utilize our freedom to worship. Amen? So I hope you have a great time this week with your friends and family. It was billionaire Warren Buffett who once said, what the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. That's quite the statement, isn't it? Like anything new that comes to us, we want to sort of put it in a category that allows us to preserve what we already think and what we already believe. Um, Sociologists will often refer to this as a confirmation bias. Here's what they mean by that. It's the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with your already existing beliefs. This is, it's oftentimes unintentional. We do it without noticing, but we do it all the time. I I mean, think about this. Think about the last time that an umpire made a bad call that benefited your team. Right, where you were able to say that was a terrible call and it benefited your team. No, no, here's what we do. When umpires make bad calls, it goes against us. When they make calls that go in our favor, we call those fair. That's what we call it. We call it fair, right? And so we're interpreting information based on what we already believe and the convictions that we have. We, we do this with our news too. Oftentimes we go to the same news outlet and they tell us the news in a way that they know that we want to hear it if we are dialing into that news station or that website. We call these media filter bubbles. Did you know that websites and news outlets are more likely to serve you content that they know you'll agree with because of your search history and click history and like history than they are to give you news that they don't think you'll agree with? Now, this is a tale as old as time. I mean, I think back to Copernicus coming to the leaders of his day and suggesting that maybe, just maybe, the earth was not at the center of the solar system. And what happened to Copernicus? He got canceled, right? He got written off. No, no way. We are the center of it all. Thank you very much. You must have gotten it wrong. It was uh, author Adam Grant in his great book, Think Again, who wrote, we listen to views that make us feel good instead of ideas that make us think hard. And I think he's right. And and this is something that we deal with in our day and our time at a level that I don't know that humanity's dealt with before because of the proliferation of technology and this ubiquitous nature that we live in right now where information is everywhere. But this has always been a part of humanity's story. I mean, think about growing up as a, as a young Jewish boy or girl. In the morning and evening of every single day, you would pray a prayer called the Shema. It went like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? One. 
And as for you, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Lord is one. This was the calling card of Judaism, the very first, the oldest monotheistic religion. And so when Jesus came and claimed to be able to do the same things that only God was able to do, just like Copernicus, he got canceled by the religious leaders of his day. They they didn't have space for that kind of thinking. You can call it confirmation bias. You can call it ingrained theological conviction, but they called it orthodoxy. And one of the hardest Things. One of the hardest places to change what we think or what we believe is in the area of our theological convictions. However, Jesus did not come in order to reinforce what people had previously believed or the religious traditions that they had so readily taken into their lives. He came and said things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He pushed back against the way that people interpreted the law. He pushed back against the traditions that they held to. He pushed back against their idea of what the temple was for and what Sabbath was for. He pushed back against things that they held dear. And in doing so, he presented people with a choice. Here was their choice. Will you allow God to, re- allow God to reshape your understanding of him or will you hold on to your biases? Will you give him authority or will you maintain your own autonomy? That's what Jesus came asking. And that's what John chapter five, the second part of John chapter five is all about. If you have your Bible, would you turn there with me? John chapter five, we're gonna be in verse 18 through verse 29 today, but I wanna give you a little bit of context for where we're going to land and In so doing, we need to jump back a few verses to verse 16 to sort of understand what's going on in this story because we're sort of jumping in in the middle. Here's what verse 16 says. It says, and this is why the Jews were what? Persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now that word persecuting could also be translated prosecuting. And if you read through John chapter five, what you'll see is that John chapter five has the framework of a a trial, of of a John Grisham novel, if you will. I mean, we see words like judgment and honor, bearing witness, truth, testimony or testifying and accusing. It's all there. And what are they accusing Jesus of? Of doing things on the Sabbath that good Jewish people were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath was one of the highest held laws in all of Judaism, still is today. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you stay at a hotel that has more than one floor, you will see two elevators that are right side by side. One of them has a sign that says Shabbat elevator and its doors open automatically. You don't need to push a button. And it stops at every floor along the way so that you don't need to do the work of telling it which floor you want to go to. Now you only make getting on that elevator instead of the other one, that mistake one time, right? I mean, it's like, it's like being in the elevator with Buddy the Elf where he's just like, right? Like we're stopping at every floor. And by the way, it looks like a Christmas tree, right? 
You only make that mistake once. So Jesus is in trouble for the way that he's interacting with the Sabbath and the religious leaders put him on blast and listen to what Jesus said. He said, my father's working until now and, and I'm working. Like, like my father sustains all things. He not only created it, but he holds it all together. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. And so I'm just simply reflecting my father. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father. Let's read this phrase together. Making himself equal with God. So, so Jesus doubles down and he says, guilty is charged. I'm doing the things that, that only God can do. The religious leaders know exactly what Jesus is claiming. And can you just hear in the background of their minds as he makes this claim, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the leaders, admittedly, they're in a bit of a precarious position. Jesus isn't following the rules, but he's performing miracles. He doesn't honor their Sabbath traditions. And yet a man who was paralyzed a few minutes ago is now able to walk. Like, what do they, what do, they do with that? Like their confirmation biases are kicking into the point where they can't even celebrate the fact that this man is walking. And so the trial ensues. And listen to what Jesus does. He does not back down at all. Verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever, everybody say whatever. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So Jesus doesn't use the same terminology that, you, that they did. He doesn't say the father and I are equal. In fact, I think he one-ups that and he says, the father and I are unified. What he does, I do. There's two ways that Jesus talks about the intimacy that he has with his father. One is, is in the actions that they take. He goes like, when, when I healed that man who was not able to walk and now he's able to walk, the only reason I did that is because it's what I see my father doing in the world. See, um, God is, the father is like Jesus and, and Jesus is like the father. He makes this claim. I don't do anything on my own, nothing. I am not independent. And I think that's the reason that Jesus doesn't double down on this idea that he's equal to the father. Because oftentimes when you're equal to somebody, you don't need that person. You have everything that they possess. And what Jesus says is, no, no, no. I have intimacy with my father. We are not independent of one another. We are working independence one hand in the other. Jesus never operates alone. He has intimacy in the way that they take action. So when it comes to viewing Jesus and the Father differently, I think we have to let this text read us a bit. Because oftentimes people will say things like, I just have such a hard time with the Father. He seems like he's angry and wrathful. And, and maybe we have this bifurcated view of God. where like the Father's angry and Jesus is meek and mild. And Jesus comes to save humanity from his angry dad. And what we read here is that that is not the case at all. 
That when we look at Jesus, we've seen the Father. When we look at the Father, we see what Jesus is like. They are unified in the way that they act. But also, he went on to say, the Father, what? Loves the Son and shows him everything that he himself is doing. And Jesus makes two points. One, I and the Father are unified in action, but we're also unified in affection. One of the most striking characteristics, I think, of the Trinity that we see in the New Testament is each person of the Trinity's um, inherent shyness to receive glory only unto themselves. Throughout the New Testament, you see the Father saying, it's about the Son and it's about the Spirit. You see the Son saying, it's about the Father and it's about the Spirit. You see the Spirit saying, it's about the Father and the son, and each of them are going, it's about them. I mean, you imagine the conversation amongst the Trinity, you're the best. No, you're the best. No, no, you're, the, you're, you're way more beautiful. No, you're, you're greater. I love the way that Bishop H.G.C. Mool captured it when he said, nothing shines more radiantly in the New Testament than the eternal love of the father for the son. Let that sink in for a moment. This love expressed between persons where the lines blur between one, where one of them ends and the other begins. I mean, we've seen this happen in, in couples that have been married for decades upon decades. Like, have you noticed that couples sort of start to look like each other over the years? Like, not only that, but they often will finish one another's sentences. Now, now, Think of that minus sin and over all of eternity. That's the way that the father and the son interact with each other. Jesus does not claim to be equal with the father better than that, more than that. He claims to be one with the father, intimate in action and affection. And by the way, when we get to John chapter 15 in a few months, um, we'll see that that's the invitation Jesus gives to his followers also. To be so unified with God, to have union with God to the point where we are one with him. And Jesus goes on from there and he says, and uh, greater works than these will he show him. As if to say, oh, you think like healing on the Sabbath is good or bad depending on your perspective? There's more than that to come. Like that's just the beginning. Greater works than these will he show them so that you may, what? Marvel. That word means to be awestruck, to have your senses overwhelmed, to be just paused with amazement. That word marvel is what maybe the emotions that we feel like when we, we look at a picture of the Northern Lights. And just this light dancing across the polar regions, just breathtaking. Or when we see National Geographic pictures of the wildebeest migration across the Serengeti, where over a million wildebeest every year travel roughly 500 miles across the desert to find greener pastures. Amazing, amazing. Or if you've ever stood on the perimeter of the Grand Canyon and looked down, roughly 6,000 feet down into the base from the perimeter. Like nobody stands on the edge of the Grand Canyon and goes, 
yeah, I've seen better. No, there's, there's something in us that is overwhelmed with the gravity of such beauty and such majesty. Or maybe, maybe it's holding a, a newborn baby and it just sort of takes your breath away, doesn't it? Those are all situations that cause amazement or, or wonder. And Jesus tells the people that are listening to him, what you're going to see me do ought to bring about amazement ought to bring about a sense of wonder, a sense of awe. But the Jewish leaders, they refused to be amazed. They refused to be amazed. Instead, they they got offended. And they weren't necessarily struggling with the fact that Jesus was able to perform miracles. They were struggling with what those miracles meant for their life. Because if they were willing to be amazed... They knew that their amazement would eventually lead to them giving Jesus an authority that would then end in their adoration. And so they needed to stop it right there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is... And we we can't go there. We can't go there. Here's what I want you to write down today. That being amazed by Jesus' authority should cause us to follow him wholeheartedly. See, amazement is never the end goal. Amazement needs to lead us to see Jesus's authority and then to bow in surrender to him. The Jewish leaders of Jesus's day were unwilling to go there. My question is, are you? Are you willing to go there? And before you say yes too abruptly, Let's just admit that we often do the same thing that the Jewish leaders of Jesus's day did. We tend to reinvent and reinterpret Jesus to reflect our previously held convictions. We conform him to our worldview instead of the other way around. We typically fashion a Jesus that makes us feel good, reinforces the convictions that we have, and responds to the wrong in the world in the exact same way that we would respond to the wrong in the world. As Voltaire once stated, God created us in his image, and we have been returning the favor ever since. (laughs) The Jewish leaders were guilty of just that, and I would suggest to you that oftentimes we are guilty of that as well. Because here's what we all understand. Here's what we all understand. One of the most important decisions we will ever make is who and what has authority in our life. Because we understand if we give someone or something authority in our life, it will shape the direction and the contours and the decisions that our life takes. And so in many ways, I think we respond to Jesus in a very similar way that the Jewish leaders did. We're resistant. We go, I don't know if we're willing to go there. Because if I'm amazed by you, that means you have authority and that means I must follow wholeheartedly. Or as somebody just down here said, if you have authority, that means I don't. I don't. Amen to that. So here's what Jesus does. He doesn't back down. He goes on the offense. And he says, let me give you two ways that I am in intimacy with my father where we do the same things. The things you expected God to do. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The things you know only God does, Jesus says, I do, I do. Verse 22, 
or 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Jump down to verse 25. Jesus makes two cyclical arguments in this text and they repeat each other. So here's where he gets to this life, idea of life again. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Remember one of the very first verses in John's gospel, John was telling us about Jesus and he said, in him was life. And that life was the light of men or the life of humanity, of all mankind. Here we see those same words in Jesus's own words. He's reaffirming, John is right. John is right. I have life. There you go. How's that for dramatic effect and appeal? And I love that Jesus is saying the hour has come. Like it's, it's happening right now. It's happening in your midst. Now, this may not seem all that controversial to us, but it was blasphemous to Jesus's first listeners. The Old Testament clearly taught only God can give life. And here Jesus is saying, I can give life. See, he has authority, he claims, to awaken life. Remember that Greek word life that we studied a few weeks ago? It's the word zoe. Would you say that with me? Zoe. And it's not just existence, but zoe life is the kind of life that you just drink in, not just existing, but being alive, where you lay down at night and you go, Jesus, thank you for the gift of being alive. It's not just life that lasts forever. It's the kind of life that you want to last forever. And I would suggest to you that throughout the first four chapters of John, Jesus has been on a, on a Zoe parade. I mean, if you go to a parade on the 4th of July, I just want you to have that phrase in your mind. Jesus is on a Zoe or life parade. I mean, think about some of the things that he's done. He's gone to a wedding that was running out of wine. He makes enough wine for them to hang out there for probably a year and experience true joy. John chapter three, a Pharisee is invited to be born again and see the kingdom of God. John chapter four, a woman at a well comes to Jesus with all of her brokenness and all of her pain and he offers her living water. John chapter four, the end of it, a father comes to Jesus, tells him his son is sick and Jesus says, your son will be well. The beginning of John chapter five, a man is sitting by a pool for 38 years. Jesus comes to him and says, get up, take up your mat and walk. Life is bursting forth everywhere that Jesus goes, life accompanies him. And the question is like, what, what would that life look like in our lives today. And I would say to you, I think it looks very similar to the way that it looked when Jesus walked the earth. It looks like people being healed. It looks like spiritual awakening. It looks like joy being restored. It looks like past pain and trauma being met with a word for the weary and Jesus healing past wounds. It looks like Jesus coming with a word of encouragement in the midst of our struggles. It's happening all around us, you guys. It's happening all around us. 
I mean, we see it in marriages that are being restored. We see it in addictions that are being broken free from. And I think when we read Jesus saying, I have the authority to bring life, I think it should cause us to pause and ask, where do we need the life of Jesus to intersect with our story today? So let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus has authority? Are you willing to say, will you breathe life today? Today, would you be amazed? Would you be amazed with what he's able to do. Verse 22, the second thing that Jesus claims to do that only God could do. For the father judges no one, but he's given all, how much? All judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. The father has given all judgment over to Jesus. That's quite the astounding statement. Once again, might not mean much for us, but you need to understand that for the Jewish people, they were really clear that judgment is God's. Like that's God's job and it's God alone who is the ultimate and final judge. So the scriptures are clear. And yet Jesus says, I have authority and I have authority to deliver judgment, not just to awaken life. Now see, anybody who, who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God just simply doesn't know how to read the scriptures. Look at the way people responded to him all throughout his ministry. Jesus makes these radical claims that didn't conform to people's previously held notions about what God was like. So many people wrote him off. Jesus clearly is making a claim to deity. But the topic of judgment is a a bit precarious, especially in John's gospel, because it seems so clear here The father has given all judgment over to the son. And yet we read in John chapter eight, verse 15, Jesus speaking, he says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Wait, I thought you judged everyone. Now you judge no one? John chapter 12, verse 47, if anyone hears my words, this is Jesus speaking and does not keep them. I do not judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Wait a second. In chapter five, you told us that the father has entrusted all judgment to you. And here you say, I don't judge? What? Or John chapter three, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn. That word translated condemn is the exact same word in the Greek that we translate as judgment. He didn't send the son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Raise your hand if you're confused. Come on, get it up there, get it up high, right? Yes, it's a bit slippery in the gospel of John. Now, let me um, invite you, if you do have your Bible, you can flip over to chapter three, just a few pages to the left, because I think this is where we get the key to how to interpret this idea throughout this entire gospel. 
Remember, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Verse 18, Jesus continued, whoever believes in him is not condemned, not judged, but whoever does not believe in the son is judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. You guys, this is, this is huge. Jesus does not come to deliver judgment or condemnation. What he says here is judgment is our natural state apart from him coming. Judgment is what we are under because of our sin. It's the natural state of humanity apart from believing in Jesus. He goes on to say, and he makes it more clear here, and this is the judgment. Okay, finally, tell us. What is the judgment? The light has come into the world. Who is the light? Jesus. So the judgment is that Jesus came into the world. That's God's judgment. Jesus showed up. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus doesn't judge per se. He doesn't come and judge. Jesus is the judgment. Jesus is the judgment that on our own, we only experience death. Jesus is the judgment that we cannot and will never be able to save ourselves. We remain in judgment when we refuse to step out of judgment and into light. Think of it like this. Imagine that you've gone to the doctor to have some just symptoms checked out. They do some tests, they run some scans, and then you come back and you have a meeting with your doctor. Some of you have been there. And the doctor says, I've got bad news. You have cancer. Now, nobody looks at the doctor and says, how dare you give me cancer? (laughs) Do we? No, that's not what we do. Because the doctor didn't deliver the cancer. The doctor just simply invited you into the reality of the fact that your body is attacking itself and that this cancer is present within you. God's judgment works in the exact same way. His judgment doesn't create a problem for us. It reveals the problem. We were born into sin and death and we remain in sin and death if we refuse to come to Jesus to have life. Judgment is what we need saving from, not something that Jesus came to deliver. So that's why Jesus will say, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes, hears and believes him who sent me, they have eternal life. He doesn't come into what? Judgment but has passed. See, see, it's where we currently are apart from Jesus. We've passed from what? From death into life. Praise be to God. I think we need to ask ourselves today, are we willing to let the truth of Jesus judge us? I mean, everybody's like, yeah, I want the life of Jesus. More life, more Zoe, count me in. You guys weren't as excited when I said, are we willing to let the truth of Jesus judge us? But here's the thing, you guys, here's the thing. Please please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. His judgment is just and it's gracious. 
It is just in that it names our darkness. You can try to outrun it. You can try to outwork it. You can try to outperform it, but it will always be present. He is just in that he names our darkness, but he is gracious in that he provides everything that we need in order to move into his light. He is just in that he pronounces us guilty. Apart from Jesus, all of us will stand before the throne of God as guilty of sin, guilty as charged. But he's gracious in that he provides all the means necessary for forgiveness that he holds in his hand. The judge is also our defender. The just is also the justifier. And there's this word that just dances around throughout this section of the text. And it's this word honor, that those who would receive the words of Jesus would honor him. And that in honoring him, they would honor the father. Well, how do we honor Jesus? Well, listen to the way that John Stott put it. If Jesus who thus taught with authority was the son of God made flesh, we must bow to his authority and accept his teaching. We must, all, we must allow our opinions to be melded by his, molded by his opinions and our views to be conditioned by his views. And this includes his uncomfortable and unfashionable teaching. Let me, let me just say it like this. If you haven't read the gospels recently and thought, ooh, ouch, or you haven't read them and thought, Jesus, I'm not sure you could say that in 2023 and get away with it. I'm not sure we're really reading them. This includes his uncomfortable and unfashionable teaching such as his teaching on sexuality and his conviction that marriage is between a man and a woman and that gender is indeed binary. This includes his command, not suggestion, his command to pray for those who persecute us and to resist retaliating when we are wrong. This includes the value that Jesus placed on human life. The preborn, the kids, he said, come to me. The elderly, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. I mean, Jesus rubs against most of the things that we hold so tightly to if we'll really read him. And I think the question that we have to wrestle with, remember, remember, God created us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. And I think we need to ask ourselves the question today, not whether or not Jesus agrees with me, but do I believe him? Do I believe him? Will I be amazed to the point that I give him authority so that I follow wholeheartedly, even when I'm offended? And even when it doesn't fit my confirmation bias box that I've created, like when Jesus blows up our confirmation bias box, I think we are finally close to surrender. So we've read, the son gives life, it's present tense. The son judges, it's present tense. But Jesus makes it clear that these things that he's doing while he walks the earth are also the things that he will do for all eternity. Listen to the way that he said it, verse 27. It says this, and he has given, them authority, given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. Like, so don't be so shocked by the fact that Jesus is able to give life and judge now. For an hour is coming 
Remember, we already read that the hour is already here. Now, Jesus says the hour's coming. So something new is on the horizon. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That's amazing, yes? That's shocking, yes? And all, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So now, now we start to see a little bit more clearly that those who are, we see now that those who are dead in their sins come to life in Jesus, but there will come a day when those who are dead in their tombs, their name will be called and they will raise to eternal life in Christ. I love the way that, um, just to think about it, that we experience now in part what we will experience fully for all eternity. I don't, I don't know about you, but there's a, a few phrases here that I sort of get a little bit hung up on as I'm reading through the end of what Jesus said. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. How many of you, got, how many of you go, well, that, I'm not sure that sounds right. Because we were already taught those who hear and believe, like those are the ones that have eternal life. Isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? It's interesting, uh, commentator J. Michael Ramsey put it like this. He says, this problem exists only for modern readers who have learned from centuries of biblical interpretation to set faith against works. No, no, no. Coming to Jesus is what counts. But those who come to Jesus, they step into the light and then they begin to do the truth that they say they believe. These are not set in contrast to one another. They are essentially one and the same thing. But my guess is you also got caught up on this idea of, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Judgment, yikes. Yikes. So here's what Jesus is teaching and what the scriptures affirm. Not just that those who believe in Jesus will be resurrected, everybody will be resurrected. Those who believe in Jesus will go on to live eternally, that Zoe kind of life with him for all of eternity. And those who do not believe will go on for all of eternity or all of eternity to experience death and judgment. That's the truth. I know it's not popular. And I know it's not heavy. And I know some of us have like a confirmation bias box where we go, well, well, I'm just not so sure I can believe in that. And I wanna end where I began this morning. I wanna end by saying, are we willing to believe Jesus even when it goes against some of maybe the things that we'd wanna believe? Are we willing to believe and when it goes against some of the things that we currently hold on to? See, because what's being taught in this passage is that Jesus has authority and he will have authority for all of eternity. And what we decide on, what we do with Jesus, what we hear and what we believe will determine how we experience eternity, either with him or apart from him. Either life, a resurrection of life, or a resurrection of judgment, a resurrection of death. So here's my, my plea with you. Don't let your tendency towards confirmation bias to stand between you and the truth today. Be amazed and then bow in adoration because since Jesus has authority forever, 
In him, we have life eternal. This is the good news, friends. This is the good news. He has authority to give life. He has authority to judge. And the question is, will we ask him to awaken life in us? And will we honestly hold our lives before him to say, would you render your life giving, grace filled, mercy saturated judgment against me? Speak to me about the things that I'm holding on to that are dark and evil. And then lead me into your glorious light. I want to invite you to begin to put your things away. We're going to turn our attention to the table this morning. And see, at the table, we get to celebrate his body crucified, Jesus' life given for us, that we might experience life and life eternal. Will you let it amaze you again today? Will you allow it to have a weightiness and an authority in your life? Will you allow him to give life and render judgment that we might experience the fullness of what it means to follow after him? Does he have that authority in your life? Let me just give you a moment to pause. Will you give him that authority? Just say back to him, even right now in your heart, Jesus, I give you the authority. You rule and you reign throughout all of eternity and over all the cosmos. And I want you to rule and you to reign in me. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.